The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Good morning. Good to see you. Well, today is the beginning of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, when we call the great event of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. It's a familiar Old Testament picture of of their king, the Jewish Messiah, who's Greek, shouts of Hosanna. So he's, he's greeted with these shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The meaning of, of Hosanna is save us. Save us. As we read in Psalm 118 and verse 25, save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. So the king has come. God has shown his light upon us, causing us to see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So we pray. Give us success in Him. Let's pray together. Father, we give You praise. For truly, we we see that Jesus is God. Then You have made Your light to shine upon us, showing us Your glory in His face. We bless You from Your house, this place of worship giving you thanks for Jesus, the one who has come to save us from the penalty of sin and blessed us with eternal life and joy in Him. We gladly proclaim this morning that Jesus is King. Now as we look upon your word, we pray that you would open our eyes to the greatness of Jesus, that more and more we might see His glory seeing that He is the King who bought us and redeemed us and reconciled us to You. Father, help us to see that nothing and no one compares to Jesus. No warrior, no hero, no leader, or certainly politician gives us hope apart from Him. Help us, Father, by the work of Your Spirit to continually grow in the love and admiration of Your Son. He is worthy of our ongoing shouts of praise, for He alone is able to save. We pray in the great name of Jesus, our King. Amen. We'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark and chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one on the back table. Feel free to take one if you don't have a Bible. So again, Mark chapter 11. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The verse 1 to 11 of Mark 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, 
The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying that colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you've been a Christian for some years, you've, you've probably heard a lot of Palm Sunday sermons. And likely, I'll mention some of the things that you've already heard before. But you know, there's something in this account of Mark's that's really interesting. Something that I don't know that I had heard before. Uh, if it was preached, then I wasn't listening But um, something that's really unique here. So pay attention. Don't fall asleep. Uh, There's something special for you here. Even if you've heard it before, this is an incredible scene, isn't it? This massive crowd lining the path that winds down from Bethany on the top of the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. People are waving palm branches and greeting King Jesus with loud shouts of praise. A scene that they they wished would come in their lifetime. Something anticipated for hundreds of years as people throw down their branches and cloaks for him to ride upon, showing him honor. They shout, Hosanna! Which means, Lord, save us now. And so, there's this buzz of anticipation in the air. And an expectation of of change, of messianic blessing and salvation. It must have been an incredible scene. And yet, okay, we've sat through Palm Sunday sermons and we think, yeah, but they didn't have it right. Their expectations were wrong. They wanted a savior from the rule of Rome. And these same people who shouted Hosanna are going to soon be shouting crucify him. And to some extent, this is true. But it's also too simplistic of a view. Yes, there probably were some people who shouted Hosanna and then within a short period of time cried out for his crucifixion. But let's not overstate this. Let's not overstate this and make make this a lesson about people being fickle. Let's remember Luke's account that tells us there were two kinds of people there that day. The ones who were praising Jesus and then the Pharisees, the ones who said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
must remember also from Luke's gospel that right before this event, Jesus told them a parable about the ten minas and how some people would be faithful to the king while others would be enemies, not wanting the king to rule over them. Let's remember that in this parable, Jesus describes another coming of the king, one that's described to us in Revelation 19, and that this one would not be a humble ride on a lowly donkey coming in peace, but on a white war horse coming to settle his accounts and slaughter his enemies. Let's remember that, okay, his own disciples, right? His own disciples. We, we're going through the book of Acts. His own disciples who never shouted crucify him. In Acts 1, they're still wondering, they're still asking him about his kingly rule. Right before his ascension. So there are, there's a lot to this event. Remember that Jesus had, he had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And that People were obviously excited about this. They were running ahead, telling disciples, telling all the people, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. So there's all this this building anticipation and, and a message going out that he's coming. And the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, it resulted in the different people that we see here on Holy Week, those who rightly worship him and continue to follow him and those who represented Israel growing even more hard-hearted rejecting his glory and and plotting not only to kill him but Lazarus who whose mere existence glorifies him okay so were some of the, these people there that day fickle Following along with whoever shouted the loudest? Probably. This kind has always existed, hasn't it? They exist in the church today. Influence, um, influenced by whoever's shouting the loudest with wrong expectations and motives. But for the most part, regardless of their confusion over what kind of coming this was. There were true worshipers who continued to follow him. And there were those who hated him all the more. Because this is what Jesus tends to do. He forces us to be hot or cold. To love him or hate him. He tends to divide He did what he said he would do in Luke 12. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. If people actually listen to him, there's no more polarizing figure than Jesus. Because his claims about himself didn't give us the option to simply say that he, he was a good teacher or a great man. As C.S. Lewis rightly said, he's, he's either the son of God and we should fall at his feet and call him Lord and God and worship him. Or he's a liar, a crazy man, or the devil of hell. Jesus was absolutely clear. 
and the details of his actions on Palm Sunday should leave no one in the middle. He's claiming to be king, the Messiah, come to save his people. And this, this should divide, eliciting either praise or a disgust that desires his execution. Clearly, there's a mix of people. And another thing that's, that's clear is that Jesus knows the scriptures. He knows the prophecies concerning himself. And what he does on this day makes a statement that fulfills prophecy, that fulfills scripture. There are several things for us to see. And again, Mark's account has something very unique. Okay, here it is. Did verse 11 seem strange to you? We have this amazing scene. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem with loud shouts of celebration. And then verse 11 seems incredibly anticlimactic. Let's read it again. So he's just entered in, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus entered Jerusalem in a way that said, I'm the king. I'm the king your ancestors have longed to see. This is the most exciting day of your lives. Nothing will ever compare to this. I'm the Messiah here to save. And when he finally enters into the city, well, we, we expect that he'll do something great. That he'll at least say something or, or give a teaching. And some of the gospel accounts give us the impression that, that this is when he he enters into the temple and he, he storms in and he starts turning over tables. But if you, read, if you read on in Mark's account, what you see is that Jesus actually returns to Bethany. And then the following day he curses the barren fig tree, which represents barren Israel. And then a day later he comes back to Jerusalem, probably walking this time without a lot of fanfare. And it's now that he enters the temple again, driving out the money changers, cleansing the temple. So his initial visit to the temple as he rides in with all of the shouts of Hosanna, save us. He simply goes into the temple, looks around, and goes back up the hill to Bethany. It's an interesting detail. Maybe one that you haven't really thought about. So stay awake. I'm going to save this for the end. For now, I just want you to recognize that it's, that it's strange, that it's unexpected. The details tell us that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. That he, he wanted to present himself as this greatly anticipated king who is the Messiah. In verse 1, when, when he first drew near to Jerusalem and to Bethany, which is at the top of the Mount of Olives, we read that Jesus sent two of his disciples to go and get a colt or a, the foal of a donkey. Okay, now, 
When we here in Oregon think of a mountain, we think of something much bigger than the Mount of Olives. So when we describe Bethany as a mountaintop village, don't picture the Alps. Uh, here in the Rogue Valley, we don't even call Roxiana a mountain. We just think of it as a hill. Uh, but it's 2,000 feet above the valley floor. Here, this, here's the picture of the Mount of Olives. It's a couple of miles from Jerusalem. It's only 300 feet or so above, high, higher than Jerusalem. It's more of a hill. And Jesus, wherever he went, he typically walked. In fact, never before is Jesus described riding an animal. In all of his journeys, he walked. So he's not sending his disciples to get a donkey because he's tired or, or he needs to traverse down this steep mountain. Again, Jesus knew the prophecies concerning himself. And most of them involved something that he couldn't control, like being born in Bethlehem. God ordaining that at the time of his birth there would be a census having to do with taxes. And so Mary and Joseph are forced to return to Bethlehem right at the time when he would be born. Jesus can control all of the details surrounding his crucifixion, being pierced and his executioners gambling over his clothes. But this is something, this Palm Sunday, this is something that Jesus could control, that he intentionally does. And in Matthew's gospel, he tells us that it has to do with Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So no, Jesus isn't tired and telling his disciples to go steal a donkey. This is, a, this is an image that people would know. A prophecy they anticipated having to do with the king, the Messiah, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And to us, it seems strange, even comical, because this image of a person riding in on a foal of a donkey doesn't seem very intimidating or king-like. Most kings in the ancient world rode in on great steeds, magnificent horses, but, but not the king of the Jews, as prophesied in Zechariah and Isaiah. In fact, this image even goes back to Genesis 49 and the patriarchal blessing that Jacob pronounced upon his sons. Because of his sin, Reuben is denied, as is Simeon and Levi. But listen to what he says about Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. And from this day forward, throughout the rest of Scripture, the coming Messiah 
would be known as the Lion of Judah. It goes on to say, Judah is a lion, lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, or sign of royalty, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes." This image is deeply rooted in the Jewish consciousness of the Old Testament and their future hope of the king riding on a donkey as their coming Messiah. Yes, the people of that day, they had wrong expectations, thinking their king would deliver them from the rule of Rome. But they weren't thinking, now why is he on a donkey? They weren't thinking that. Those who loved him and continued to follow him knew, and those who hated him knew as well that Jesus was calling himself the king. And as he taught in the parable of the Minas, at his final coming, some would be blessed and others would be slaughtered. And there will be no doubt about his glory as king. So Mark tells us that that Jesus, he sends two of his disciples to go into the village, which is likely Bethphage, and that immediately they would find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Now this too is a detail about his kingship. Because in the ancient world, including Israel, there was this concept of eminent domain. That one of the rights of the king was to commandeer a beast of burden whenever he needed it. So Jesus, as king, is exercising this right. The message, the Lord has need of it, is understood as the sovereign king is commandeering your donkey and its colt. But something else we see in our text is this detail of no one ever sitting on this particular cult. The significance of this detail is that in Jewish history, no one was ever allowed to ride on the king's horse or the king's donkey. Only the king was allowed to ride on it. That's why Jesus specified, get me the cult that has never been ridden, because this is the cult prepared for the king. Okay, now I didn't, I didn't grow up around horses. Uh, but one thing I do know is that if you hop on an unbroken horse, and I'd imagine the same would be true with donkeys, they're going to buck and try to get you off of them, to throw you. Is that right, horse people? Yes, okay. So there's a bit of a problem here. How do you train... How do you break or prepare a donkey if no one's allowed to sit on on it because it's the king's? I don't think Jesus was ahead of time 
going and preparing, sitting up, breaking this donkey for this moment in time? I suppose the most obvious answer in this case is that the one who stood up and called out to the wind and the waves, peace, be still, would also have authority over a donkey. There's a lot of questions when we, when we read this. There are a lot of questions like, how did Jesus know there'd be a donkey in that village? How did he know there'd be a, a colt that nobody had ever sat on? How did he know that his disciples would be questioned by the owner and that they only needed to say the Lord has need of it? And people have speculated that maybe Jesus worked out the details ahead of time and that, that may be true. But again, he is the king after all. And he could, he's the one that apparently amazed Nathaniel, right? He says to Nathaniel and calling him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you with Nathaniel understanding this as evidence of his deity, exclaiming, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. If Jesus knew and had authority that no mere man could possess, then certainly he could sovereignly know and orchestrate the details of an errand to go and get a donkey. And clearly, the owner of that donkey understood that the the Lord being spoken of was not simply some sir or master. I think what he heard was the sovereign one, the king of the Jews, requires your donkey. So we read that they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Here's another detail. Notice that when they brought the donkey to Jesus, the disciples took their cloaks and put them on the back of the donkey as a saddle for Jesus. And the other Gospels tell us that the people, when Jesus began his procession, they also took off their cloaks and threw them on the path before him. It's like a red carpet of clothes. And this, too, has its roots in the Old Testament. Okay, probably the, who's the worst king of all in the Old Testament? Ahab. Got to be Ahab, the worst king of all with his wife Jezebel. Ahab brought about paganism and idolatry into the royal court of Israel. He was constantly trying to kill Elisha the prophet. And finally God said enough. And he told Elisha that he's going to replace Ahab as king. So according to the command of God, Elisha, he took a a vial of oil and gave it to one of the sons of the prophets, telling him to go to the house of Jehu and anoint him as king. And when he did, we read that Jehu's men took their garments and laid them on the steps as Jehu descended to trumpet blasts and shouts of Jehu is king. 
Jesus' procession was a cloak-covered path from Bethany at the top of the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem. And not only cloaks, but also palm branches were cut from the trees covering the path and being waved in the air. Being waved in the air as people shouted, Hosanna, Lord save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Palm branches were symbols of victory. And so however we might view the expectations that the original audience had, certainly Jesus is king and he is victorious. Even in their temporary confusion as they see him defeated at the cross, we know that it was a victory. He is the victorious king who is forever worthy of our praise. So whatever you may think of Palm Sunday, think of these two truths. Jesus is the one true king, sovereign over all, and this king is victorious. He's victorious now, and his victory will one day become clear to all as every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, his kingship and victory are clear. That's the clear message of Palm Sunday. But what about verse 11? We read that the victorious king entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Again, it seems to be incredibly anticlimactic. A huge, long-awaited parade that, that welcomes the victorious king. And he goes into the temple, he, he looks around, and he goes back to Bethany. As if nothing significant had taken place. And it's confusing because we wrongly view Jerusalem as his ultimate destination. When in reality it was the temple. Jesus was looking around at the place where historically the sacrifices were offered. The temple that replaced the tent or tabernacle. It was a structure that was prophetic in that it pointed to a greater tabernacle, a greater dwelling place of God. Remember how John's gospel began. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The phrase, he dwelt among us, literally says he tabernacled among us. Jesus is king, and Jesus is victorious. And according to this, he is the fulfillment of everything the tabernacle pointed to. Jesus is the temple. He's not an illustration of the temple, the temple is an illustration of him. And so he said, you can tear this temple down and not one stone will be left among the others, but after three days I will build it again. Tear down the type and shadow and I will build its reality in my resurrection and in my church because I am the temple. 
Jesus went into the building that illustrates himself. Now here's the the irony Mark intends by verse 11. Back in 586 B.C., at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and their captivity to Babylon, God gave a vision to the prophet Ezekiel. The vision had to do with Jerusalem and the temple. In that vision, he saw the glory of God rise up from the temple, depart from the east side of the city, going up 300 feet and resting on the Mount of Olives. Remember the story in 1 Samuel, as the daughter-in-law of Eli the priest hears that the ark of God was captured, and as she's dying and giving birth, she names the child Ichabod. Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Ezekiel's vision is an Ichabod. It's like a holocaust as the Jewish people are taken into captivity. And he sees the glory of God leave the temple, leave the holy city, and come down on Bethany at the top of the Mount of Olives. Palm Sunday, it has to do with the victorious king, the one whom Scripture defines as the brightness of the glory of God. And the very glory of God comes down from Bethany, from the Mount of Olives, going into the Eastern Gate, to the Holy City, and into the Temple. In 586 B.C., the glory of God left the Temple, and now, on Palm Sunday, the glory returns. And sadly, tragically, Israel is taken into a worse captivity because they don't understand, they don't see that Jesus is the very glory of God. Do you see? Do you see that Jesus is the one true king? The one worthy of shouts of Hosanna? The one Lord who is able to save? Do you see the glory of of his humility? Riding on a lowly donkey, headed into Jerusalem, knowing it leads to his death on a cross, where he takes our sin, our, our shame upon himself? Do you see that he tabernacled among us and fulfilled the entire point of the temple? That he is our great high priest? Entering once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption for all who trust in him. Do you see? Do you see? Do you know this this king of glory? The one and only Savior who is worthy of your daily and eternal praise, the one who is coming again, this time riding on a white horse, having victory over all of his enemies and making all things right. Do you see? Do you see that if you know him, that if he is your king, you have nothing to worry about? Do you know that he is your everlasting glory? 
That he is sovereign over every circumstance, over all of your sufferings, and that he promises to withhold no good thing from you. So yes, we shout Hosanna, Lord, save us, knowing that nothing can prevent him from doing so. This is the one we worship, not only on Sundays, but with our entire lives. So in light of such glory, in any and every circumstance, we have every reason to look and see and live with great confidence in our King. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, help us to see. Help those who don't rightly see Jesus as the King of glory, as the one who is victorious over sin and death, as the Savior who came and died to atone for their sins. Help these to see your glory in the face of Jesus. Call them, Father, call them to forgiveness and eternal life, we pray. And for those who do see Jesus, give us clarity, a clarity that impacts all of life, Help us to see that he is so much more than one separate compartment that we can tuck away after Sundays. But he is our king, our sovereign, our good and loving master. And that that he has come to redeem every part of our lives. That he has saved us and is saving us and cannot fail to save us and bring us home. So as we approach this Holy Week, Lord, we ask that you would cause us to see afresh and grow all the more in love with Jesus and what he's done to save us. We bless you from the house of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.